With frequent wildfires contributing to airborne pollution and the fall allergy season upon us, it's time to buttress your respiratory health with Breathe Clear from my friends at NT Factor. Breathe Clear with NT Factor combines the benefits of NT Factor's breakthrough lipids formula with powerful bioflavonoids and amino acids. Together, they've been shown to restore energy, repair the damage to cells caused by wildfire pollution, decrease allergic reactions, reduce sinus congestion, and open blood vessels. Breathe Clear with NT Factor is the best formulation available for tackling both allergies and the free radical damage caused by wildfire smoke. For a limited time, buy one container of NT Factor Limits Powder and get a bottle of Breathe Clear with NT Factor free. That's a $27 value. Just go to ntfactor.com, that's ntfactor.com, or call 800-982-9158, 800-982-9158. Arm yourself with the protective power of NT Factor Lipids Powder and get Breathe Clear with NT Factor absolutely free and breathe freely while supporting your body's fight against allergies and free radicals. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to tackle the very, very important subject of chronic fatigue syndrome, also sometimes known as uh, ME, uh, myalgic encephalitis. Uh, we are going to talk to an expert. Uh, she herself has uh, personal experience with chronic fatigue syndrome because she was afflicted with it at age 16. Uh, she is trained as a chiropractor originally at the Palmer College of Chiropractic, uh, and she graduated uh, later with honors from the University of Bridgeport Human Nutrition Institute Master's uh, Program. Uh, she uh, now resides in Munich, Germany, where she has studied at the Technical University of Munich, uh, and She's also host of her own podcast on Spoonie Radio. Uh, she's Dr. Courtney Craig. Uh, Courtney, it's a pleasure having you back on Intelligent Medicine. You once uh, visited us uh, around a year or so ago. Is that correct? Yeah. Thanks so much for asking me back. Okay. So we're ready. We're anxious to hear uh, an update on uh, your activities. Uh, first of all, you, you know, why uh, Munich, Germany? Why is it there that you've decided to... Uh, set up practice and make it your headquarters? Well, um, like so many others, I grew tired of New York City, the hustle and bustle. Um, chronic illness or not, it's not an easy city to live in. So I was pretty desperate for a change. And I also really wanted to uh, advance my education and learn laboratory skills um, so I could have a better understanding of the literature, uh, particularly as it relates to nutrition. Um, so and um, education in Germany, for the most part, is free, even for foreigners. So that was also a big selling point for me. Um, and they, of course, have top universities. So I got lucky, and I was accepted here at, at TUM. Um, and, there, and I should mention that the programs are offered in English, uh, learning nutrition and biomedical sciences. So it really gave me a glimpse into the met methodology uh, of research science as it relates to nutrition. Well, well that's fantastic. Uh, so it gives us a little background on, on how you personally 
got interested in CFS as a as a sufferer of that condition. Right. So uh, this past year actually was a celebration um, of, I guess you could call it a celebration, but uh, 20, 20 years since my first diagnosis, um, which is quite a thing to swallow. Uh, so, you know, and the, through that whole time, it's been ups and downs uh, with my own health and with the knowledge that we have available about the disease. Um, and that continues to, to go and go. Uh, at, at present, 20 years later. Um, so it's been interesting to see how the condition has changed in me uh, over all those years as well. Um, and it's really changed since moving here as well. So all these kind of life events, uh, as well as just the, the passage of time, have made the experience of having MECFS very different for me. So you've also made yourself a living laboratory for some of the things you've studied in terms of uh, some of the uh, medical uh, and uh, lifestyle approaches uh, that can impact uh, the status of patients with uh, CFS. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is really why I've been interested in everything I've studied, particularly nutrition, um, because it's been such an excellent tool for me. And granted, you know, this is an incurable disease um, and but it's it's very manageable, and I like to approach it with things that I can control. Uh, and diet uh, and supplements, those are things that I can control to to manage my symptoms effectively. Uh, of course, you know, you'll have some bad days here and there, but uh, I've kind of, over time, refined what really works for me uh, to to prevent relapse, to prevent bad days as much as possible. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about uh, CFS and, you know, the, the, the whole terminology associated with this. The, mm -hmm. Some people have, have stated that the term CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, sort of uh, undermines the seriousness of this condition. Uh, in the past, they've derisively dubbed it yuppie flu. Uh, you know, various celebrities have said they have chronic fatigue syndrome, but, you know, maybe they're just suffering from uh, ordinary burnout. Uh, yeah. Do we tend to trivialize it when we call it uh, CFS? Yeah, I mean, this is still a problem, um, and it's still the butt of some jokes, right, um, to, to use a term like this. Uh, and at the same time, you know, governing bodies and the scientists and experts out there have tried to change uh, the terminology. I think most recently it was systemic exertion intolerance disease, mm -hmm. or SIDE, which did not catch on uh, at all, and it's not being used at all. Uh, but but at it's present. actually very germane because that is yeah. uh, truly one of the hallmarks of the disorder. You know, uh, uh, folks it out is. there, if you complain of fatigue, you know, you're tired, uh, the first question I'll ask you in my office, and I'm sure uh, Courtney would ask you if you're consulting her, is what's your reaction to exercise? And many people, you know, sometimes I'll feel tired. I'll say, well, you know, let me go down to the pool. I'll swim a few laps. I come out feeling uh, energized and revitalized. But that's not the case with chronic fatigue syndrome, is it? Right. No. And that's really the hallmark um, defining symptom of this condition is is you have this uh, unrelenting fatigue, sometimes even flu-like symptoms. So the immune response responds after exertion. Now, that could be physical exertion uh, or that could be mental exertion. And I find this happens to me, too. I, I mm -hmm. sit down to, to work one day. I'm, I'm writing uh, mm -hmm. for my website or, or other work. And then it triggers, you know, an inflammatory response. I feel slightly mm -hmm. feverish. I feel pain, you know, all of these things. So it's not just physical exertion. It can mm -hmm. be mental exertion. Right. Uh, and, you know, 
part of the impediment to recognition of this disease and uh, progress in research towards addressing it is the difficulty of ascertaining, you know, who precisely has CFS because uh, laboratory tests is kind of elusive when it comes to there's no marker, there's no blood. T- I mean, there's a blood test for HIV. It's a clear cut. Uh, there's, you know, blood tests to determine if you have uh, diabetes uh, and so on and so on. When it comes to CFS, uh, the hallmarks of the disease, it's more a symptomatic diagnosis, right? Right. It's very subjective. And this is really the crux of the problem with con- this condition having been in it uh, as a as a sufferer and as a, a scientist or a researcher for, for 20 years. We haven't really moved the needle on this so much. Um, you know, and you see headlines now more often, oh, potential biomarker for, for CFS, potential mm-hmm. biomarker here. But the problem with all of these is we are not comparing this finding to other fatiguing illnesses. We're just comparing abnormalities to healthy individuals. But we have to consider that people with MS, people with uh, mental conditions like depression, people with other types of autoimmune diseases also experience fatigue. So we have to compare any potential biomarker that we've found in MECFS to other fatiguing illness illnesses. Otherwise, it's it's not specific. Maybe it's just a result of being fatigued or deconditioned or whatever it is. And that's really what researchers desperately need to do right now mm-hmm. uh, is start comparing potential biomarkers to other fatiguing illnesses so that we can get as specific as possible to decide what makes MECFS so much different than every other chronic condition. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit of a wastebasket diagnosis, too, because just like uh, another another condition with an acronym, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, it's, you know, when you don't have colitis and when you don't have uh, Crohn's disease and when you don't have uh, parasites uh, and all the tests are negative, then they relegate you to the IBS wastebasket. Uh, similarly right. with CFS, it's sort of like, well, we can't find anything. In fact, you've written a, a, a book. Uh, it's an e-book which is available on Amazon, all my test results are normal, a smart mm-hmm. guide to testing for chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, so is it possible that um, there are uh, many shades and subtypes of CFS? It's just not one monolithic disease? Well, we don't really know that for sure yet. Again, that's going to be really hard to to pick out because every patient presents in such a different way. And some people have different triggers. For me, myself, and for many, uh, it was a virus that you never recover from. But for mm-hmm. other people, it's a, a traumatic injury that's musculoskeletal, or it's an emotional event in their life. So it's, it's going to be a hard chemical exposure to determine that. Yeah, or an exposure to, to mold or other sort of chemical pollutants, absolutely. So, mm-hmm. you know, understanding the origins of this is going to be very, very difficult to, to tease apart. Um, but but getting back to the, this idea of testing, and, and this is one thing that I encountered myself, you know, in the early days. It, it took me years to even get it, this diagnosis. And on average, I think most patients experience three to five years to get a diagnosis. So that's how trash can <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. We need to get better at that. Um, and part of that just comes with, you know, basic medical care. It, you're not getting adequate assessment, you know, and, and that's really what I write about a lot in the, in the book you mentioned, because um, it happened to me 
you know, I wasn't having a thorough evaluation of the entire system. You know, doctors have uh, tunnel vision and don't order all of the tests that they should. They certainly aren't ordering more comprehensive testing like functional medicine testing or testing for exposures or things like this. So, number one, I think the most important thing for, for patients that present with fatigue of any kind for over six months, you need a thorough evaluation that, that looks at all of these things. Mm -hmm. And looks for, you know, other possible remediable, more remediable causes of fatigue, such as uh, hypothyroidism, Absolutely. Uh, uh, perhaps some form of adrenal dysfunction, uh, and on and on it goes. Uh, but what, what's this, is there some unifying theory now in the best circles about what causes CFS? Is it does it have to do with uh, hyper excitation of the immune system or perpetually inappropriately activated cytokines, something like that going on? Yeah, again, we have literature on, on all of those things, but none of them are specific to the condition. Um, we have had an influx of research, I think, within the last five, maybe ten years, a lot more research dollars are being put in. The NIH recently put in uh, about $7 million to defund multi-center uh, projects. So there's more interest, still there's really more research. It's really a drop in the bucket considering you know, really the billions expended on other conditions. I mean, it's estimated <laughs> yeah, that there's really maybe a million or two with you know pretty hardcore CFS in the United States. Uh, or yeah, if you, if you do the numbers and compare the, the amount suffering versus the research dollars, it is, it is sad. Um, but nonetheless, it has increased over the years, and we're getting some really interesting research coming out. But as far as grand unifying theme, it's a little hard to kind of piece everything together. We have groups looking at metabolomics, which kind of consistently shows uh, a kind of a, a low me metabolic state in mm -hmm. MECFS patients where we're not producing energy efficiently. Mm -hmm. We have trouble with the breakdown of carbohydrates. Uh, glycolysis is, is hindered. Um, we also have studies looking at the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's consistently showing dysbiosis uh, and uh, lack of diversity. Um, we have new studies looking at uh, autoantibodies, which mm -hmm. are, seem to be very common as well. Uh, one of the most interesting areas of research right now, I think, is looking at uh, new imaging techniques to, to brain, image brain the, the brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just uh, perfusion, which has been known. For for quite some time, the mm -hmm. lack of blood flow to the brain, but actually measuring the inflammation in the brain, the energetics mm -hmm. of the brain, yes. Mm -hmm. So we see some neuroinflammatory uh, signs in, in new mm -hmm. imaging studies. Uh, my theory of how all these are connected is what they all have in common, rather, is we all have, they all have a chronic inflammatory state, um, which is not really surprising because chronic disease itself is inflammatory. We have excess oxidative stress, we have mitochondrial dysfunction, and all of these things that kind of perpetuate the disease. And you mentioned cytokines, um, and all of those studies are kind of all over the place as well, but that just ties into the fact that in this condition we have excess oxidative stress, excess inflammation, and I think the most severe cases, uh, the cases of, of patients who are, are bedridden, who have sensory um, sensitivity to light and sound, uh, inability to, to get out of bed. These, I think, are the most severe as far as their inflammatory load, their oxidative stress mm -hmm. load. Yeah, they literally want to lie in a darkened room and, you know, even uh, sound is jarring for them. 
Yeah. Yeah, the thing is, you know, this is not a cause, right? Because pretty much all chronic disease has inflammation as, as, a, as a, a common uh, factor. But what we need to determine is what either genetic or epigenetic or what sort of exposures that, that triggered this whole event set the stage for this to perpetuate in a way that's different than other chronic diseases. And uncovering that is going to be very tricky. And there's been a lot of controversy over whether there's a psychological uh, contribution. Uh, in fact, big pushback from the CFS community uh, against people who say, hey, you know, get over it. You know, take cognitive behavioral therapy. Stop thinking yourself, thinking of yourself as a sick, debilitated person. Uh, begin uh, cautiously to exercise, uh, you know, break through your limitations that you feel uh, when you're tired when you exercise. And then there's been enormous pushback against that because uh, the people who uh, don't like that approach uh, feel that the critics uh, who say it's a psychological condition just don't understand the fundamentals of CFS. Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting to read the literature that's out there by the, the field of psychiatry that are tr trying to push out this kind of theory, because if you look at their papers, they don't cite any of the biomedical research. They don't cite any of the high-profile papers. So they, it's like they have their heads in the sand. And this is such such an issue that I'm tired of hearing about because it, it's kind of like kicking the dead horse. Mm -hmm. I mean, as we mentioned earlier, this de disease is defined by inability to exert oneself physically or mentally. So how on earth is exercise graded or otherwise going to be beneficial mm -hmm. when the one thing that makes this disease unique is our intolerance to exertion? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like telling people who have a heat intolerance to, you know, gradually uh, have more and more exposure yeah, gradually. to sauna, you know, so <laughs> they get used to it. Yeah, that's not what happens here, and it causes so much harm to patients, and I see stories of this all the time online, and it's heart-wrenching. Mm -hmm. And this is a real problem, especially in Europe. This is less of a problem, I think, in the U.S., but here in Europe, these ideas are pushed even harder. Here, here in Germany, in the U.K., pretty much all over Europe. Um, and this is what the government in insists that the providers do first for mm. patients with this diagnosis, mm. um, regardless of age, regardless of anything, it's severity. Uh, and it causes so much harm because most of these patients that undergo these graded exercise therapies relapse, some of them so detrimentally that they're bedridden afterward. So, you know, rule number one, do no harm. Uh, and this is one initiative that has done so much harm to so many patients. It's mm -hmm. very very sad. Is there evidence that this is viral? Because at various times they've come up with uh, the idea that, oh, we can just use antivirals. In fact, even some AIDS <laughs> drugs on patients who have chronic fatigue syndrome and just wipe out the virus and then they'll feel good. Uh, a lot of patients still come to me, you know, after being seen by their primary care. Uh, and when they can find nothing, they do uh, an EBV virus uh, panel, Epstein-Barr virus panel. And they say, well, it's abnormal. And so you have, quote, Epstein-Barr virus, and uh, they're relegated to the scrap heap. There's, well, you have a virus. We don't yet have treatments for that, but at least we have an explanation. It's a virus. This is a virus. 
Yeah, when you do a test like that, it, it was a virus. There's no, I mean, very seldom is the virus active uh, mm-hmm. when, you, when you actually run these blood tests. And these are viruses that are very common, endemic in most of the population. Um, can, and if this you comes look for them, you're going to find them in, in the vast majority yeah, of individuals. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're all, you know, chronic uh, reactivation of viruses associated with all sorts of different diseases like MS and different types of autoimmunity. Um, but, but the thing is here, again, talking about etiology of, of the condition, and some people, most, I think, people present with a post-viral type fatigue. Mm-hmm. And it could be EBV, it could be CMV, it could be HHV6, it could be uh, cytomegalo, uh, I just said that one, uh, but uh, mycoplasma pneumonia, I mean, you name it, all some, of these Or some un- as yet undiscovered agent, but it, it just triggers an overall immune response where it appears that the Epstein-Barr virus is uh, reactivated, but maybe it's being co-activated by something. Right, yeah, we, we haven't really pieced that together, but, I, you know, I think that's the most common trigger in, in most mm-hmm. patients is, is a viral infection that doesn't seem to fully re- recover from right so, uh, so why efforts that happens, to I don't ki- know. so efforts to kill a virus you know and they've used some very powerful uh, even hiv medications and there was actually uh, a few years back uh, hints of success with patients uh, but then that whole project crashed and burned and then integrative doctors <laughs> sometimes use things like uh, ozone hydrogen peroxide you know various harsh uh treatments to try and uh, extirpate some sort of hidden virus mm-hmm. uh has that paid off in any way yeah, most most clinicians have gotten away from prescribing antivirals because they're they're not so effective. Um and I think the main reason for that is you have to know when the virus is reactivated. Uh when the virus is reactivated and you take a medication geared to that virus it's going to be more effective than when it's dormant but potentially still causing immune modulary problems. Um so yeah, as far as natural approaches, I, I don't ne- necessarily think it's a good idea to target the virus specifically unless you know it's active, but instead support the immune system uh, in general, take a more broad view uh, to prevent the viral reactivation in the first place. Well, let's uh, take a look at some of the, the basic theories behind this. You know, you've actually uh, written uh, and talked about the impact of the microbiome on uh, the immune system and signaling uh, that can affect uh, the brain, the nervous system, the muscles, uh, energy metabolism. What's going on there? Oh, the microbiome is is, is slowly becoming less of a, a black box for us uh, as we learn more with the literature. You know, it's it's the hot topic of the century. I think um, it's still really challenging as a clinician, and particularly a clinician working with MECFS patients, to to know exactly what to do here. We know that almost 40% or more of MECFS patients have some form of some form of IBS. A large percentage also has small intestinal bowel overgrowth. Um, I seldom find a patient that doesn't have any gut issues whatsoever, you know, mm-hmm. and I do stool testing and, and these kind of things. So the goal is, of course, to understand if there are pathogenic bacteria present and they need to be treated um, using antimicrobials. Or if there's just a general dysbiosis, you need to support some sort of um, protocol that's going to improve diversity. Uh, And I think diet, as well as fasting, is one of the best ways to achieve that. And one of the issues that you've tackled uh, lately 
uh, is the possible role of a ketogenic diet uh, in helping patients with this condition. And the hint is that they do have uh, issues related to their carbohydrate metabolism. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, any sort of major shift in dietary change we know can dramatically alter the community and, and the muck and the microbiome. So switching to a ketogenic diet or or even if you're starting on a standard diet and switching to just a low carbohydrate diet is going to have dramatic shifts in the gut microbiome. Um, and we know ketogenic diets are going to be more favorable to, to short-chain fatty acids, which have very anti-inflammatory effects. Um, and there's a lot of interesting things happening in the gut when you, when you add high fats uh, to the diet. Uh, particularly from median chain triglycerides uh, and <clears throat> polyunsaturated fats. And how about the brain? Because uh, the brain utilizes short-chain fatty acids and ketones uh, differently than the normal source of energy, which is glucose. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and we are seeing so much research now uh, in the power of beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the main ketone body produced through a ketogenic diet um, and its ability again it's one that actually crosses the blood-brain barrier most fats do not uh, and its ability to act as a signaling molecule in the brain where it can interact with the immune cells of the brain the microglia to to limit uh, inflammatory cytokine release um, it can affect neuroplasticity um, but basically, it has a, a kind of neuroprotective and anti-inflammatory effect, um, which is very potent, especially if you continue the diet for, for longer periods of time. We know that the more you're on ketogenic diets, the more you have receptors on the brain that take up the, the ketones. Mm -hmm. So... The, the longer like you you're on it, the more you can train your brain effect. to be more receptive to that. Uh, do, yeah, do, these do things you, take time. Do you induce the beta-hydroxybutyrate via diet changes, or can it be taken as a, a supplement or a precursor? I think either is certainly a viable option. I'm very interested in using exogenous ketones. The mm -hmm. problem is they're they're rather expensive for the average person to, yeah. to acquire. Um you know, you, you can use just fasting or a standard ketogenic diet, but you, you want to assure, ensure that you're increasing beta-hydroxybutyrate. So if you're going to fast, you need at least 18 hours to increase blood levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate. Um, it might be less if you're on a strict ketogenic diet. If you use ketone um, salts or esters, those are also very effective for increasing beta-hydroxybutyrate, but they tend to be very expensive. Um, I have been using medium-chain triglycerides. MCT oil. MCT oils, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, this is a, kind of a, a cheaper way to do it, but it is proven to be just as effective. Uh, but you have to take a bit more. And it can cause some gastrointestinal distress, but it resolves after a few days. And, and you've written about some of this on your website. Let's give it out before we pause for... Uh uh, before we go to part two, what is that again? It's uh, CourtneyCraig.com? DrCourtneyCraig.com. DR. DR Courtney. Let's, so let's spell it, you know, it's a, <laughs> you know, a little exotic uh, for some people. <laughs> I have a long name, yes. DRCourtneyCraig.com. So C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y-C-R-A-I-G.com. Okay. That's pretty straightforward. Okay, folks, uh, because uh, we divide our podcast into two parts, 
uh, we're going to uh, move on in part two uh, to talk about specific strategies. We can talk about uh, supplements uh, for CFS, uh, for mitochondrial support, uh, and we'll talk a little more about the personal journey of today's guest. Uh, she's Courtney Craig. Uh, she's uh, a DC, a chiropractor, uh, with special interest in uh, nutrition and in um, uh, remediating the uh, problems of patients with chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. <laughs> 